currently we uh, are participating in a meditation retreat dedicated to the memory of Ajahn Chah. And for those of you who are not, not familiar with Ajahn Chah, he lived in northeast Thailand. Uh, can't remember which year he was born. Early 20th century. He died um, 20 years ago, 1991. He was 73 years old. He lived in a forest uh, which became a monastery and is now a very large monastery. It's about 70 monks, about 60 nuns live there permanently and then many visitors come and stay for shorter or longer periods to study meditation and the Buddhist teachings. That forest used to be a place, a very large forest with uh, malaria and long, long time ago, wild animals. There's still a few animals left, but nothing very dangerous except for a few snakes. And Ajahn Chah spent the early part of his life as a monk wandering around uh, Thailand, the forests of Thailand, because in those days, a hundred years ago, much, maybe 90% of Thailand or even 95% of Thailand was forest. So you could literally walk from one village to the next or one town to the next and stay under trees. Sometimes there were roads, but sometimes just little mud tracks between the villages under the trees. So it's very easy for monks to travel around just living very simply, camping in the forest either an un, under a mosquito net or sometimes people would make them a very simple hut with a grass roof out of bamboo, a temporary dwelling. And there was lots of forest and space. The villages were scattered around. People would have cleared land where they grew rice and vegetables but the rest was forest, so there's still a lot of animals, a lot of illness like malaria, dengue fever, other kinds of illness around. So the life of a forest monk when Ajahn Chah was young, he it was quite difficult. The region very poor, so monks got very little support, even though people had a lot of faith they didn't have much to give or share with monks. So often the monks had to go without uh, medical help if they got ill or injured. Often very difficult to get just the most basic kind of necessities of life other than a very simple food. Might be able to get that on a daily basis, but 
things like cloth were hard to come by. One of the ways monks in those days would get cloth is they'd get cloth that had been used to wrap a corpse. Bangsakula, Chiwara, corpse cloth or discarded cloth. So it's obviously something nobody else wants and monks are able to take things that nobody else wants. You have to live very simply. And when they have uh, cremations, even today in some of the forest monasteries, they'll have very simple open cremations for lay people who die and the, the corpse is brought in in a very simple coffin and it's wrapped in a cloth. And when they light the fire, just before they light the fire to cremate the corpse, the cloth is pulled off the corpse, unwrapped, pulled off, and then hung on a tree. And this is one way monks could get cloth to make their robes. And obviously not very attractive, sometimes had a smell or stains on it. The monks had to boil the cloth to try and make it clean and to make it presentable. Then they could dye it with a natural dye. And a natural dye came from the jackfruit tree. They still use it today. The wood from the jackfruit tree, you chop it up and boil it up. And make a, an orangey brown colored dye which also has medicinal properties so monks not only dye their robes in this mixture but they wash them to get the grease and stains out and that doesn't cost anything because usually these trees you can find all over Thailand sometimes they just fall over or somebody offers a, a bit of the tree they cut it up and offer it to the monks to make dye. And then they can wash in the, the same liquid, so that doesn't cost anything. So monks live very simply. Discarded cloth, natural dye. Sometimes even simple things like soap were hard to come by. Some monks sometimes had to learn how to just bathe in a stream with no soap. Sometimes you can use ash from a fireplace. You rub that on just to take away the smell from the body. Even when I was a young monk, I was staying in one very poor monastery. There was uh, three monks, four monks and a novice. We had one box of matches between us. And... Uh, once that box of matches was finished, it was a long time before the next box of matches was offered. The villagers were very poor. They didn't have much money. They just grew rice and they didn't really sell it. They just ate it themselves. So they didn't make much money. So even matches were hard to come by. Spent a three-month range retreat there and I just had two batteries for my torch and that was it. And we all knew once your batteries ran out, that was it. There's no replacement. So always as sparing as you could be using your torch. If there was a bit of moonlight, you'd walk using the moonlight light, even though there were snakes around. 
You're always trying to be very careful not to waste your torchlight. Um, in the end, it got so faint. You know, there's a little bit of light, <laughs> but it's almost pointless. You hardly could see anything. I remember one day I came back to my hut and I sat down. I was saving my torch, so I'd used to feel my way into my hut in the dark. I sat down on a scorpion. It stung my leg because I hadn't seen it. So life could be hard. There was no pipe water, no electricity in the monasteries. So no telephone, no communication. In that monastery, we had to haul the water, meaning we had a well where we used a rope, pull the water up, and then we put it in a little cart and we'd send it to the different spots in the monastery where they needed water. I live very simply, Ajahn Chah, even more simply than that. Uh, it made the monks very committed to their lifestyle because you know, there's no luxuries, no frills. It means you're only a monk if you really want to be a monk. You really want to practice meditation, learn how to make your mind peaceful. You have to be really sincere and committed to doing that. That's a basic truth about Dhamma practice, you have to have some faith, some confidence that it's worth doing because sometimes there's obstacles and difficulties. It's not always uh, comfortable and easy. So Ajahn Chah always emphasized that, you know, to really use your faith to bring up energy and effort in the practice, to think of the benefits of the practice, you know, even if you're poor, especially as a monk, you're very poor, but you can be happy because of the wholesome dhammas, the good karma that you're making. We say you're making merit, making good karma. Brings up a lot of inner peace and joy and happiness, which compensates for the lack of material wealth and luxury and that kind of thing. And in Northeast Thailand, they have great faith, great belief in the power of karma, good karma. You make good karma, it's good for you. It brings you happiness and benefit. And not just in this life, but in the next. So people have a great faith in that. They have great faith in supporting Sangha. So people are very happy, even if they're very poor, they might share just a little bit of sticky rice with the monks. You walk past their house, they come out, just put a little little bit of sticky rice in your bowl. That's all they've got. But they do that with their heart full of faith because they believe you. You make good karma supporting a monk or doing some act of kindness for someone, charity. They're very good at helping each other out when they have work to do or when there's a problem. They're very supportive of each other in the family and in the village community have a belief that this is good karma that will bring it as a result back not just in this life but in the next life there's a very uh, basic understanding and belief in rebirth what you do not only affects you this life affects you in the future so people get a lot of energy from that to do good to 
put the effort into studying the Dhamma, listening to Dhamma, meditating, uh, doing acts of dhana, and so on. That's where they get a lot of their energy from. Sajen Chao said he got a lot of his inspiration to practice when his father died. He uh, was thinking about, you know, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of, the li of life? Yeah. He said we should always ask ourselves, why, why was I born? As a reflection in our practice, why was I born? Why am I here? Where did I, where did I come from? Uh, what's the purpose of it all? Because as human beings, very easy just to fall into habits. You know, we never ask or question anything. We just go along according, following, uh, following the crowd, following society, following um, family and parents and so on. None of it which is necessarily wrong, but often we don't stop to think more deeply about life I and mean, what's the purpose and where are we heading to. Rajan Chah said his, he had a big insight when his father died. Made him think about you know, the importance of life and what is the best way to use your life. And then what happens when you die? Where do we go? What happens? When we die, is that the end of it? Finish? Nothing else? You know, many people believe that. Or if you accept the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha said, when we die, According to our karma, we'll experience rebirth. According to the good, the bad, what we've accumulated in this life, will carry on into the next life. And even this life is a carrying on from past lives. So some of the experiences we might have in this life, which we can't immediately explain, sometimes we might attribute them to past life karma where you're born and the people you meet once you're born in this world, your parents, then the people you meet. We say some of them maybe you've had a connection with from the past. And similarly, the people we meet in this life and what we do in this life may um, be a cause for different things to happen in future lives. And they say somebody who practices meditation and finds it easily easy to make their mind peaceful and concentrated is probably someone who's been practicing meditation in a past life. So it's as if they're continuing on their practice in this life from where they left off last life. Or somebody who's just naturally generous. You meet people who are very find generosity easy. They have a great sense of uh, importance of helping others and supporting others. Maybe they're somebody who's done that previously already, so it's already in their character when they're born. And then it comes out in their character throughout their life. And so on. You know, many of our habits we've actually picked up from past lives and we bring them into this life and then we if it's a good habit, we might develop it and uh, improve on it. If it's a bad habit, well, the Buddha said, try to recognize that and abandon it. 
Because sometimes we have our more negative habits, more negative karmic tendencies which bring us suffering and problems in life. And that's something we have to look at. And the Buddha said, the, the greed, the anger, the, the delusion that affects our mind will bring us um, difficulties and suffering in this life and into the next life. And some of those connections we, we have with people, you know, we have connections with people from friendliness and warmth and love. And then we have connections with people in the sense of enmity, hatred, anger different qualities, but they, both these qualities connect us to other people, don't they? You can love someone, be friendly to someone, warm to someone, or you can hate someone. And the Buddha said that quality will bring us uh, or carry over into our next life if it's a very powerful um, sense of kindness or a very powerful sense of anger or hatred, it will follow us into our next life. So then you get experiences where you maybe meet somebody and you instantly strike up a friendship with them, even though you never knew them before, didn't realize you had anything in common. Maybe it's a stranger, you just meet them and suddenly you feel a rapport or some warmth and maybe strike up a relationship, a friendship for whole life sometimes. Perhaps that's because of this, a past connection. And similarly, sometimes you meet someone and you instantly hate them. You haven't said a word yet, already you don't like them. Why would that be? Maybe it's because of past karma already bringing its result. Uh, maybe not, I mean, you can't always be sure of this, but it's something for us to reflect on. Similarly, things like love at first sight. Why do people fall head over heels in love just meeting once? One look, they say, thunderstruck or a thunderbolt. Maybe it's a thunderbolt from past life, karma. This means you meet this person again, oh, you already loved them in the last life, this life, straight away fall in love. Sometimes that can be tricky if, say, you, you meet somebody who maybe is, we say, somebody you had fallen in love with in past life, and you meet them in this life, and you love at first sight, but they're already married. Difficult. <laughs> what do you do? Or if you're a monk, and monks don't get married, so what does a monk do if he falls, falls in love or love at first sight? There's one teacher, a famous forest meditation master, when he was a young monk, he went um, he was studying with a teacher, Ajahn Singh, a disciple of Ajahn Mun. And there was a funeral in the village and they had to go and chant at the house of the person who died. So a group of monks, four monks, went into the village in those days, they just walk into the village. There's no cars. They walk for a few kilometers into the village, sat down in this house to give fun uh, to chant uh, funeral chants for the, the dead person and their family. 
when the four monks sat down, was the, the youngest monk was this meditation master in his early years. They all sat down, and then all the villagers came in, a big crowd of the local people sat down, and there was one young lady in the middle, and as soon as the young monk and the young lady, their eyes met, the young monk froze. He went completely speechless. And then he started to sway, and he, then he was going to faint. Just the shock of seeing this girl, it was like love at first sight. And the teacher is very, very sharp, Ajahn Singh, very sharp. He knew this was his wife from a past life. He just saw her once, one look, the eyes met, oh, and he was about to faint. And just before he fell back, the next monk caught him. And the teacher said, leave now. <laughs> and he didn't just mean leave the house. He left the house, went to the monastery, and then he had to leave the monastery that night. He said, if you stay here, you'll disrobe, and that would be a great shame for your practice. Um, so that was it. He never saw that girl again. The teacher said, this is a partner from past life. So it can be like that. Very powerful emotions can come up. And this is karma that's generated from the past. It can be love, can be hate. Ajahn Mahabur, even they say, he had a karmic partner from past life, but he never told anybody. There's a lady in the local village, and he never said anything to anybody. And then when she died, when she was very old, he told the monks, I'm going to the funeral, to lead the funeral chanting and to give a Dhamma talk. And some people were surprised and wondering, why did he pick this family, this person's funeral to go to? And he went to the funeral and he said, today we've cremated this lady. I've actually cremated her many, many times before in many previous lives. We've uh, a very strong karmic connection. And he said, this is the last time I will cremate her because he, he's believed to be an arahant, reached Nibbana, so there's no more birth for him. So that cycle of being born, growing up, meeting that person, maybe falling in love in some lifetimes, maybe marrying, staying together, then having to perform a funeral, I assume she would die before him, so he had to cremate her many, many times. But that cycle finished because he reached Nibbana, no more attachment to the world, no more rebirth. That's how these cycles of karma end. So the reflection on karma, good and bad karma we make in our daily life, very, very important part of practice. It's a reflection, it's something not you don't just believe in, it's something to consider deeply. Maybe it's true, maybe not. You have to think about it, look at it from different angles, look at your own experience and see if you can see karma at work. And on the most refined level you see karma at work in your own mind, don't you? you know, the Buddha said the thing that generates karma is our intention. Whether our intention is wholesome or unwholesome.
skillful, unskillful, the quality of our intention will determine the quality of the karma we're making at any moment in our life. So if your intention is very good, so you have a, uh, an intention of say, generosity or kindness, or an intention to be uh, restrained in your precepts, or intention to practice mindfulness, and so on. So these are just examples. That will determine the quality of the karma you're making. We say good karma. Negative karma is developed through negative intention. And it will bring a, a negative result, some form of suffering or some unpleasant result, some, some harm to oneself or to others as a result. And this is something to consider every day as we practice you know, the quality of our state of mind, our intentions that lie behind our actions, and then the actions and the speech that we uh, uh, make and follow and perform in daily life. Because that's where we learn about karma. That's why I was talking about Somdet Doing as the one fist on top of the other fist. Good karma is the right fist, bad karma the left fist. The good karma keeping on top of the bad karma. And that's what we want to be doing in our practice is always making the effort to generate good karma through developing wholesome and skillful states of mind. The mind is the forerunner of all our karma. As far as the past goes, we can't change the past. And so we have to also have a lot of patience with our past karmic results, which are always popping up in life. And we, things happen out of the blue, or things just come along in our life, some pleasant, some unpleasant. And this is often the results of past karma. And often there's not much you can do to change that. You have to accept so you know, sometimes we have accidents or things don't go well. We might have to be patient through that because it's a bit of old negative karma ripening for us at that time. But if we're patient, all karma comes to an end. It's all impermanent in the sense it'll give its result and then that result passes by. So we have enough patience and we use the right qualities of mind, we can get through very difficult karma as it ripens sometimes. And then also we should put our effort into developing more skillful karma, more wholesome karma, and this will keep giving its results back. So just making the effort to meditate, you can see meditation is not always easy. Sometimes the mind is not very peaceful, it's restless, or we're doubting, uh, or we have some pain in our bodies. And just to sit meditation for half an hour or an hour is quite a challenge. You can see some of this is because of our old karma. See, if our mind is not very peaceful, there's probably karmic causes for that. Maybe we've let it think many stressful thoughts for many days and months and so when we sit down to meditate well that's we're seeing the results of past karma come up or maybe we have a backache or something which maybe has some karmic cause 
So we have to be very, very patient. But the effort to establish mindfulness and skillful states of mind to deal with with the uh, negative karma that is ripening, that's a very powerful good karma. So to be mindful of stress is good karma. And to be patient with a, a stressed state of mind, to be patient with a bit of pain or discomfort is good karma. If you're consciously doing that, you're making good karma. So you can actually turn something unpleasant or difficult into something good. You can learn, you can um, bring up good qualities of mind to deal with difficult situations. You know, that can be in your life, at work, or in the family, or just in whatever's going on in your mind during a period of meditation. So we're always seeing how to uh, respond wisely or respond well to whatever's coming up in life, whether it, if it's good karma, well, we can appreciate that. Oh, this is the fruits of my good karma. So if you're a younger person, maybe you do exams at school or at uni and you work hard enough, you pass your exams. Uh, that's the fruits of your good karma, your hard work, your effort. So you can appreciate that. Oh, I worked hard and this was the result. Maybe they pass your exams, it means you can go on and go somewhere else to study or you can get a job. That also would be the result of your good karma, that you worked hard and you put the effort into learning and studying and developing a skill. Or you know, maybe you look after somebody who's ill when you know you could just ignore them and go off and do other things but somebody's ill and you you put effort into looking after that person you put yourself out that's good karma that person benefits they get some care and support and maybe when you think back on that time and you looked after that person who was ill you feel good with that memory you realize oh that was a good thing to do a right thing to do that would be the result of good karma. You might get some joy and that person might be very grateful. Maybe you, you gain a friend if you look after someone who's ill and you appreciate each other. If you ha When we help each other, we appreciate each other. Many, many kinds of good karma that give their results. It's not that one is necessarily looking for a particular result from the good karma one makes, but these good results will come. When I was uh, a student, I had a job in a shop in the centre of London, as I lived in London. In those days, uh, people bought records, LP records, sing uh, vinyl records. You don't see them anymore. So there's a record shop. It was in the centre of London, and it was in an area where there's a lot of uh, dubious people around. You might say criminals who up to no good. This is in the centre of London. And regularly in that shop, people would come in with stolen credit cards to try and buy things. And so we had a policy, you always have to ring up 
when you took a credit card sale, you'd ring up the company to confirm that that was a genuine credit card and there was money in their account, and then we'd make the sale. But if it turned out it was a credit card that had been stolen, you had to keep it, you break it, and then you send it to the company and they'd call the police, so the police would come, but the person would always run away. But you'd keep the credit card and you'd send it to the company and they'd give you a 50 pound bonus for a stolen credit card that was recovered in that way. And in those days, 50 pounds, worth a lot of money, more than $50, it's worth a lot of money, especially if you have very little money. And there was a period during, I was working there for about eight months, and there was a period where every week I was being handed stolen credit cards. People would come in, I'd take them, I'd ring up, and I'd keep the card, the person would run away, the police would come, and couldn't catch them. But I'd send the card off, I'd get my 50 pound bonus. So after two months, I had enough money to buy my air ticket to go to Thailand to become a monk. <laughs> and everyone in the shop was getting very annoyed with me. <laughs> all the other people I worked with, uh, my co-workers, they're all very jealous because they said, oh, I worked here a year, I just got one credit card. You've been here a few months and you're just getting them every week. So I sort of got a nickname, I was the golden boy, I could always get the credit cards and get this free money. I I didn't try anything, I didn't plan this at all, it just happened. But afterwards, practicing meditation, thinking about Buddhism, I thought "Mm, maybe maybe there's some good karma that just was ripening at that time, got all this free money and it allowed me to buy a plane ticket to go to Thailand. And that was helpful. (laughs) So we have good and bad karma that we make. It gives its result. Sometimes we can see very directly the cause and then the result. Sometimes it's not so clear. But it's something we have to keep thinking about because it inspires us, motivates us to keep practicing and trying to develop ourselves in life and to do the right thing and to be patient through difficulty. I always remember one story before I left Thailand, maybe illustrates about karma as well. There's a family I knew who, there's three daughters, mother and father, three daughters, and the three daughters were brought up by a nanny because the mother and father were very busy, always working. So they had a, a nanny to look after their kids when they weren't around, to help to cook and clean and uh, take the kids to school and so on. And when they grew up, they were very uh, grateful to this nanny because she loved them like they were her own kids. And so the family allowed the nanny to retire but to stay in the house she had her own granny flat and they looked after her out of gratitude because she'd been so kind and helpful to the family and all the daughters went off to uni and then they all got jobs and two of them got married but the youngest daughter was still living at home but working 
and when she started work, the nanny fell ill and she got cancer. And uh, in Thailand, you know, it's not a country where you can just send someone to the government hospital. There may be a no beds. As, and the people don't have medical insurance either. So they're thinking, what can we do? So the young daughter said, okay, I'll pay for her treatment out of gratitude to the nanny. I'll pay for a nurse, 24 hours a day to have a nurse. And then for all her treatments, chemotherapy and other treatments, all the tests, all the doctor's fees, all the medicine, they bought a hospital bed and other equipment, put it into the house. She paid for it all with her salary. And so she didn't have much salary left for herself the first few years working. It was all going to the nanny, but she said she was happy to do that out of gratitude. And the nanny lasted a few years with all the good care, but then she died. Eventually the cancer got the better of her. And strangely enough, another year after the nanny died, that young girl who was paying for her treatment, she got a serious headache, much worse than normal, and she went to hospital, and she actually fainted in the hospital, so the doctor quickly did some tests, and they found that she had a brain tumour, cancer. And they called the family in, she was unconscious already, and they said, well, we have to operate, otherwise she'll die. But the operation, very, very dangerous, maybe only 50-50 chance of survival, really can't guarantee much at all. And the family said, well, no choice, you better do it. And the night before they operated, the mother of the, the girl had a dream of the nanny coming. Yeah, the nanny was very smiling, very bright, radiant in the dream. She's wondering, hmm, why did I dream of the nanny? Anyway, the next day the operation went ahead and afterwards the doctor came out and the family are waiting, what happened? The doctor said, amazing, astonishing. Never had an operation like this before. We opened up the skull and we managed to take this brain tumour off, off the brain, this tumour off the brain in one piece very easily. It's very big, the you know, size of your hand, sort of took it off without any damage to the brain, you know, the nervous system, replaced the skulls, did everything, and almost immediate recovery for the, the girl. She was up and about very quickly with apparently no after effects. And the doctors have never seen anything like this before. It's an amazing. A successful operation and a very good recovery. So again, you, know, you don't know, but the, that family is sure maybe it's something related. The mother is sure maybe the good karma the girl uh, made by looking after her nanny with such gratitude, such care, such attention, maybe that somehow came back to give her a good outcome from her own operation. You can never be too sure, but that's what they felt. And there's many, many stories you hear about people, you know, the good karma that we make comes back and helps us over and over again. Whether it's just the simplest sort of act of kindness or help to somebody or putting effort into meditation, listening to Dhamma, 
things we do for our family, things we do in society, all of the good karma we do is constantly bringing its result back to us. We ourselves benefit, we feel happier and better in ourselves, other people benefit. And sometimes you're making good karma isn't always about doing something. something sometimes it's just about being patient when things are difficult, not giving in to our anger or our greed or selfishness. You know, sometimes good karma can just be being very quiet when one's tempted to do something wrong or not so skillful, but one doesn't follow that impulse. And that's good karma as well. There's many ways we make good karma. It's not always having to do something or go somewhere. You know, it can just be quietly restraining oneself when one's tempted to do something not so good. Anyway, talked a little bit about karma today and how Ajahn Chah gave us a lot of, emphasized how we should reflect on karma because it's affecting us in the present moment and in the future it will affect us, the results of the karma we make. And so that's something to, uh, for you to contemplate, take away with you. So I'll leave it there. <laughs>